Amen. You can go ahead and grab your seats, and while you're doing that, grab your Bible and open up to Romans chapter 9. We are continuing in our uh, series uh, from Romans 9 through no, no, uh, Romans 16 um, called Growing Deeper. And uh, it's really important to understand this, that the purpose in growing deeper is ultimately to grow closer. The more we grow in our depths and understanding of the Word of God, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of God Himself, the more we grow closer to our God. And as we go through Romans chapter 9, I want to acknowledge that this section of Scripture is infamous for being very difficult, and it's filled with all kinds of controversy that has been debated now for 2,000 years. And I want to make it clear again that our purpose in, in dealing with this content ought to reflect Paul's heart in dealing with this content. That is, Paul is not arguing in this passage the doctrines of predestination and election for the purpose of starting debates or making people angry or frustrated. He's doing just the opposite. He is trying to end debates, and he is trying to bring a sense of closure and comfort to the hearts of Christians who can know for certain that God is faithful to His promises, that our God always does what He says He will do, and that He always accomplishes the purposes that He has designed and that He desires. And again, the ultimate goal as we read the end of chapter 11 is to bring us to a place where we praise God for these marvelous truths. All that to say, as we go through this challenging section of Scripture this morning, we're going to deal in part but not in full with the topic of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And I want to begin by reading our text this morning. I want to back up to verse 6, pick up the text that we looked at last week, so important to gather up this context. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes, beginning in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, 
He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. You will say to me then, why does He still find fault? For who can resist His will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. It it is clear, as you read the Bible, that the Scriptures teach a sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of His will, and at the same time, we see that man is responsible for his actions And his actions actually matter in the affairs of human history. And I need to do a little bit of preliminary work this morning by way of an introduction. And I want to kind of put what we're looking at this morning, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, under a broad bucket uh, and, and, and lump them together in this category here. This should be considered a tension theology. Tension theology. Again, There's tension because the Bible teaches two things. God is sovereign and man is responsible. Oftentimes, man's responsibility is referred to as free will. I don't like this term. It's a historic term. I don't like this term for a variety of reasons. The main one is this, because there is no such thing as absolute freedom of the will. It's not a real thing. And here's, here's why I say that. First, that would make God contingent, reliant upon us. It would make Him secondary and dependent upon us and our decisions. Ultimately, it puts us in the driver's seat and not God. Second, there's no such thing as free will because our wills are always influenced by many things. They're influenced by our upbringing. They're influenced by our natural disposition, our personalities. They're influenced by all kinds of external pressures that begin to shape and guide the desires and passions of our lives. Our wills are never completely and totally free. There are always things impinging upon our so-called freedom. The third thing is probably the most important While we can make decisions and do make decisions, our will is tainted by sin. This is perhaps the the most important biblical category to understand when it comes to thinking about human responsibility or free will. Every one of our wills is corrupted by sin. And so we are naturally because of this, bent towards sin. We desire sin. We choose sin. And so because of these three things, 
And I know I'm kind of glossing over them. Perhaps we'll dive deeper into them over the coming weeks. Again, let me just qualify this. We're not going to answer every single question this morning. I'll do my best to bring a, a degree of clarity, but be patient. There's lots more text to go. I prefer the term, not free will, but human responsibility. And because there's so much confusion over free will, that term throughout history, I'm going to use the term human responsibility throughout this message. But what we see so clearly in Scripture is that God is sovereign and human beings are responsible. These two things are side by side in Scripture, and the question is, how are these two things interwoven together? This, this question has been the source of debate for hundreds of years. Everybody, most Christians, I should say, throughout history have have agreed that God is sovereign and human beings are responsible, but they have disagreed on how these two things work together, are interwoven together, and attempts to reconcile these truths often result in the watering down of one or the other. It's very easy to go really high on the sovereignty of God and to dilute human responsibility. On the flip side, it's very easy to go high on human responsibility and to dilute God's sovereignty. So what we need to do is wrestle with the tension. I also want to make this very clear. This is a secondary issue, which means this. This is not a point of doctrine or theology where we must divide This is something where we can disagree and we can live in love and charity and unity with one another. Not all of us are going to see this the exact same way, and that is okay. J.I. Packer, in his uh, really exceptional book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he talks about these, these two realities, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and he refers to them as an antimony, an antimony. Here's what that word means. An antimony antimony, um, is two equally verifiable truths that have an apparent contradiction, and yet both are true. They're seemingly irreconcilable, but both of them are undeniable. He goes on to say this, think of the two principles, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, not as rival alternatives, but in some way complementary to one another. And my objective this morning is to do what Paul does this morning, okay? It's not to resolve this tension, it is actually to retain this tension. So we're going to do. It's interesting, when when Charles Spurgeon was once asked how he reconciled these two great truths of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, he responded by saying this, I do not make it my business to reconcile friends. We must strive to understand, but at the same time retain a balanced perspective. And the topic today is not an extensive answer on how God's sovereignty and human responsibility function together. So if that's what you're looking for, you're going to leave here disappointed. It is rather to address whether God can be just and fair in His sovereign election. That's the issue at hand for Paul. 
And I know what you're thinking because I think the same thing. Paul, why didn't you just give us the answer? Why didn't you just tell us how this all works together? And here's the the reason, okay? Because Paul is most concerned about showing how God is perfectly just without resolving this tension. And here's the second reason why he doesn't just resolve this for us, because it seems impossible that any full and complete resolution is possible this side of heaven. And that ought to give us all a bit of pause and a whole lot of humility. So I'm not going to resolve the tension. I'm going to strive to retain the tension. And I want to look at this text this morning through three questions, three questions. And we're going to focus on verses 14 through 23. If you weren't with us last week, you can go back and get caught up on how Paul got us to this place. But the short answer is this. He's been looking at God's sovereignty in salvation, God's electing purposes. And he said that God is ultimately sovereign in salvation. He's looked at Jacob and Esau, and he's shown us how it's not a result of works, it's God's choosing that matters most of all. And if that's true, if God is sovereign over election, if it's God's choice, it actually raises questions for us. The first question it raises is right in the text, right in verse 14, let me phrase it like this, is God just? Is God actually just? And he says it in the negative. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And look at his definitive and decisive answer. By no means. Absolutely not. There is no injustice in God. God is perfectly just and righteous in his sovereign choosing. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, I love this so much, and this is a little bit of an aside, but I want you to see how Paul answers this question. It's it's the same way he's been answering this question all throughout chapter 9. Look at verse 17 quickly again for a moment. It says this, for the Scripture says, verse 15, he says it like this, for he says to Moses. Do you see what he does there? When Paul is looking at difficult questions and trying to understand them and trying to explain them, he goes to the Scriptures. He grounds his argument in the Word of God, because the Word of God is the supreme authority for all matters in life and godliness. This is so vital for us to understand because so often we want to default to our own opinions or perspectives. Maybe we think we know better how to sort out the problems in the Word of God, but what Paul teaches us is this. We go to the Word of God, we lean upon the Word of God, we trust the Word of God, we obey the Word of God. Listen, there, there is no your truth or my truth. There is only the truth, amen? That's what Paul does. He goes to the truth of God's Word, and he answers these difficult questions by laying out what God has said. And now, I want you to see this because Paul is also substantiating his argument in the history of God's working. In other words, he goes back to the Old Testament. He goes back to the oldest parts of the Old Testament, and he's essentially telling us, this has always been the way God works. There is no other way. 
God has always been sovereign over choosing people for salvation. And if we say God is not just or fair, we reveal a faulty concept of God and a faulty understanding of the Word of God. And so now what he does is he gives two reasons why God is not unjust in his saving activity. First is this, any act of salvation is mercy, not justice. Let me say that again. This is so important. Any act of God's saving activity is mercy, not justice. And he substantiates this claim by quoting, again, from the Old Testament, specifically from the book of Exodus. He goes into the Old Testament story of God's people. God called out the Jewish people from their bondage in Egypt. You remember the the story, don't you? He calls them out of bondage in Egypt, and he calls them to go out, to leave Egypt, and to worship him above all other gods, and to put him on full display. And then something unique happens. They don't get very far before their allegiance to God is tested. Moses, in Exodus 32, goes up onto the mountaintop to receive the commandments from God. He's not gone, relatively speaking, very long. But in a moment, the Israelites, they get together, they throw all their jewelry, their gold jewelry, together into one pot, and they throw it in a fire, and they claim that out popped this golden calf, and they declare that this is the God that led them out of Egypt, that freed them, that delivered them, that rescued them. God is meeting with Moses on the top of the mountain, and he tells Moses to go back down the mountain, and it says this, that he is burning, seething in anger because of what his people have done. They've committed the number one sin. They've already broken the first commandment, the sin above all other sins, the sin that is embedded in every other sin. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the fundamental sin problem. It is the de-godding of God. It is the choosing to worship something or someone else other than God. And God in that moment should have wiped them out entirely. In fact, he said he was going to wipe them out entirely and start all over again with Moses. And Moses intercedes for the people of God. And he pleads with God to spare them. And Moses wants reassurance. In this point in time, God says he'll spare them. He'll he'll hear the words of Moses. He'll spare them. And then Moses does something interesting. This is so important for the context of understanding. You remember this? Moses says, God, show me your glory. Why does he say that there? You think about this? Why is he asking God to show him his glory? Here's why. He wants assurance that the presence of God will not leave. He wants to be sure that wherever he goes, God will remain with him. And as God, listen, hides him in the cleft of a rock and passes before him in all of his brilliant and blazing glory, God begins to speak And as God speaks, here's what you have to hear. God is speaking about his glory. It is a statement of his glory. And you want to know what God says to Moses? Verse 15. As he passes by in his glory, I 
will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The context, listen, the context proves that none deserve it. Not one of those wicked, rebellious Israelites deserved his compassion and mercy. You want to know what they all deserved? His justice. His absolute, perfect justice. His wrath against their sin. They deserved to be destroyed at that very moment of rebellion. And if you want what is just, this is so often the the claim, right? That's not fair. That's not just. And the response needs to be what Paul's response is. You don't want what's fair. You don't want what's just. If you want what is just or fair, here it is. You and me and everyone else on the face of this earth deserves the condemnation and judgment of God. No exceptions. And and here's what we see. This is so beautiful. The basis for God's dealing with sinners across the board, listen, is not justice, but mercy. Do you realize that? Let me say that again. The basis for God's dealing with sinners across the board is not justice, but mercy. Here's why I say that, because mercy implies guilt, doesn't it? Mercy itself, the very concept implies guilt. It's, It's not the innocent who need mercy, It's the guilty. And Paul makes this point because he wants to show this is connected to the gospel. It preserves the concept of grace. Look at verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Don't you see? He's just tying it into the God. Don't you get it? You, you can't save yourself. You never could. You are fully and wholly dependent upon the grace of God to intervene, to not give you what you deserve, but instead to give you what you do not deserve. God's sovereign choice of mercy does not depend on man's desire or effort. It is solely on the God who has mercy. That is true of both nations and individuals. And the context here, by the way, suggests both. Some people want to suggest that Paul is only talking about God's sovereign election of nations. The context just doesn't allow for that. It's both. God saves nations, but nations are made up of individuals. God must show mercy to individual human beings. He must show grace to them. And the point, don't miss this, is this. Any saving action on God's part is mercy, not justice. Secondly, notice this. Paul shows that any judging activity, any judgment of God is just and deserved. It's right. And in the end, he'll use it for our good and for his glory. Look at verse 17 and 18 again. He says, for the scripture says, he pulls us back into Exodus, to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Pharaoh was the world's superpower. 
And God's interaction with him, if you go back and read Exodus, uh, specifically chapter 4 through verse 14, that interaction between God and Pharaoh, it shows, listen, over and over again, God's sovereignty over Pharaoh's heart, that is the centerpiece of the drama. By the way, remember what we've already seen in this idea of of hardening of heart and stubbornness of heart. In fact, flip back in your Bibles to chapter 2 of Romans. Just for a second. Paul uses the same root word here to describe a human being, particularly in chapter 2. The context is the Jews, but, but notice how he says this verse 4 and 5. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God is so very patient, listen, with stubbornness, impenitentness of heart. And you see, when we look at the story, um, the, the true story, the history of Pharaoh, Pharaoh deserved death, but God did not strike him down immediately. You see, why? Why didn't he strike him down the moment he sinned, the moment he rebelled? Listen, here's why. As Paul is indicating, he allowed him to continue to live and reign so that God could demonstrate and display his power in the repeated defeats of Pharaoh. I mean, I want you to think about this for a minute. It would have been kind of anticlimactic, don't you think? If at the first time Moses went in, you know, Moses comes storming into the presence of Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh goes, all right, go ahead, get out of here. Kind of anticlimactic. But the fact that he doesn't, and over and over and over again, well, God comes in and he shows power, and he shows might over the Egyptians and over the Egyptian gods that they had put their faith and trust in, over and over. As time builds, as the story builds, it becomes more and more climactic. It gets to the point where you see Pharaoh is so hard-hearted, he is so stubborn, he thinks he's the one in control, and all of a sudden God has to step in and he demonstrates that he is the supreme power of the universe. It is not Pharaoh, it is no other man, it is God alone. Pharaoh would become a worldwide illustration of God's supremacy, God's greatness and power were were proclaimed all over the world, all throughout the rest of the pages of the Old Testament. You want to know what's referenced time and time again? Here is the God who defeated the Egyptians. Here is the God who defeated Pharaoh. He is the one who is the conqueror of kings and kingdoms. And the point here is that God can harden people in a way that brings him glory. Like the story, listen, of Joseph, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And mercy and hardening, they go together. They are both God's sovereign choice. And I want to make sure this is clear. We must also remember, as we're going to see in in chapter 11, verse 11, that present hardening is not necessarily the end of the story of God's grace. Somebody may appear and may actually be incredibly hardened to the gospel right now, but that's not the end of their story. 
And I want to address here also a common misunderstanding or objection regarding human responsibility or human choice. It is still true, listen, it is still true that we do choose to follow Jesus. We are not robots who are not making decisions or choices. It is a decision of our will to follow Jesus Christ. We can rightly and truthfully sing, I have decided to follow Jesus, okay? Some of you are so hardcore and are so imbalanced in your doctrine of God's election, you're like, well, we can't can't sing that, And the Bible is very clear, yes, we can. We continue, by the way, to be responsible for our decisions as Christians. But it is very important to understand that our will and God's will are not on the same level. One author said it like this, ultimately, we will as he wills, we will will. Wayne Grudem says this, if we respond to Christ's invitation in a positive way, we can honestly say that we chose to respond to Christ while also saying that it was in ways we do not fully understand ordained by God. Say, okay, but but if others are like Pharaoh and God hardens their heart, what then? And that provokes this next question, how can we be blamed, right? Right? Well, how can we be blamed if we're not responsible ultimately for hardening our heart? If God's the one who hardens our heart, if God's the one who chooses some and not others, how can we be blamed? Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, a Paul could have answered by doing a careful study of Exodus 4 through 14, which shows that God's hardening of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's own hardening of his heart are two sides of the same coin. You can't read Exodus 4 through 14 without seeing that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh is also hardening his own heart. Two sides of the same coin. God hardened Yet Pharaoh is both responsible and guilty for hardening his own heart. Paul could have said that God gave Pharaoh every chance to repent, because he did. Or that it was mercy that actually was responsible for hardening Pharaoh's heart. That the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. But instead of trying to untie this theological knot, he puts his front foot forward and he asks a jarring question in response. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Who do you think you are, Paul says, 
to sit in judgment of God. He quotes here from Isaiah 29, verse 16. And in the context of Isaiah 29, the people of Judah are being rebuked for thinking that they could shape and mold the events of history, that they somehow had ultimate control and power. And I want you to see this again. I want you to notice he doesn't offer some simple, logical conclusion that resolves the tension, much to our chagrin. No, he retains the tension, but he attacks the premise. And this analogy that he uses with the the pot and the potter, this is intended not to say that we are worthless, that we're simply just like a pile of dirt. That's not at all what he's intending to emphasize. No, he's intending to emphasize the difference between God and man, that there is a categorical distinction between God and man. It is not a difference of degree as if you think God is like you. It is a difference in kind. He's moving us away from seeing God as being somehow on equal footing with us. It's like the broken saying to the beautiful, the criminal saying to the king, the creation saying to the creator, let me sit in judgment over you. And Paul says, how dare you? That's what he's saying. How dare you? It is a dangerous thing to sit in judgment of God. And let me just say, like, there is room for questions, obviously, in the Scriptures, but there is the, uh, listen, there, there's a fine line between questions that are legitimate and helpful and good and sitting in judgment of God, the creator and king of the universe. And, and if you've ever read Job, you know exactly what happens there. The friends of Job are guilty of doing the same thing. And in effect, Job, in a sense, becomes guilty of doing the same thing. And in Job chapter 40, verse 1 and following, listen to what it says. It says, The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. He turns the tables on. Like, okay. You think you got this all figured out? You think, you think you're the one with the answers. And then it says this, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said this, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Case closed. And you, you, oh, oh, Job, did, did you create these goats? Did you create the, the, the beasts? of the earth and the sea. Did you create the universe, Job? Oh, no? Okay. Just want to make sure we know who's in charge here. And I want you to notice, Job does not say, oh, I totally understand now. Doesn't say that. I've resolved the tension. Nope. You know what he says? He says, I repent in dust and ashes. 
Who are you, O man? This, this should provoke in us, listen, such great humility. Paul is calling us to this place of humility as we tackle some of these incredibly complex and deep and confusing realities that we see in the Scripture, and he answers the question very simply for us. We are blamed because we are guilty. And he affirms God's right as creator to use nations and individuals for his purposes. And when he does, he is more than fair. That's what he's telling us. Has the potter no right over the clay to do what he wants with one and to do with what he wants with the other? Does he have no right to do that? The answer is so obvious, isn't it? Of course he does. You say, but, but if I'm a sinner unable to choose God, then judging me still feels a little bit unfair. How can God hold me accountable for what I can't do? Let me clarify something. The reason you can't choose God is because you are always choosing something else you want more. You realize that? You are free to do Whatever you most desire at any given point of time. That's how you need to understand your free will. You are always free to do what you most desire at any given point in time. Always. And by the way, you always do whatever you most desire to do at any given point in time. And there are things that are influencing that and things that are nudging you in certain directions, contacts and all kinds of different things, circumstances. Things that have the ability to press in on our desires, even shift our desires. But here's what the Scriptures teach. Apart from God's divine intervention, you have no desire for God. Your fallen human nature means you have a moral inability to do what is glorifying to God. Apart from God, you can never, listen, apart from God's divine intervention and saving work, you can never do anything that is of any spiritual good and brings any glory to God. Nothing. We always do the thing that we value most, that we love most, that we desire most, and in our sinful condition, here's what the Scriptures teach. You want to know what we love most? We love darkness rather than light. That's what the Scriptures say. That's what Jesus said. And if it was not for the grace of God, we would all be like Pharaoh. Some of you are like, well, what if I'm not elect? I hear this from time to time. I just, I'm afraid I'm not elect. First of all, elect people rarely say those words. Second of all, it is not your business to figure out who is elect and who isn't. It's not your business. That's God's business. A man used to approach Charles Spurgeon one time, and he was frustrated with Charles Spurgeon's understanding of the doctrine of election. He said, well, if you believe so much that God chooses people, that God elects people into salvation, why don't you just preach to the elect? And he said, good sir, if you could turn them around and lift up their coattails and show me the big E stamped on their back, I would gladly do so. But you get his point? We don't have that luxury of knowing who is saved by God, who is chosen by God, and who is not. It's not our business. And here's the reality. If you want mercy today, 
If you want grace, if you want forgiveness, if you want to be cleansed of your sin, if you want to be restored into fellowship with God, your creator and the king of this universe, listen, mercy is held out to you right this very moment. You want it? Come and get it. Embrace Jesus right now. Believe upon him. Repent of your sins and cling to Jesus as the only hope of salvation. Believe that Jesus died for you, that he paid for all of your sins so that you could be washed and cleansed and set free to know true life and freedom in him. The Bible never says a sinner misses heaven because they are not elect. Think about this, Christian. This is what J.I. Packer says. The Bible never says a sinner misses heaven because they are not elect, but because they do not want to repent and believe. John Stott says that so in the end, if therefore anyone is lost, the blame is theirs. If anyone is saved, the credit is God's. And if you say, how is that fair, or how does God find fault, listen, it is evidence, this is so helpful, listen, it is evidence not that you misunderstand Paul, okay? It's evidence that you understand him precisely. You see that? If you're like, well, this seems unjust, this seems fair, the problem is not with the doctrine of election that Paul has unfolded. It means you actually are understanding it and its complexities and tension. The question is, knowing there is tension here, will you hear and receive his answer? You are not God, and you have no right to sit in judgment of God. Finally and quickly, what does this reveal about God? Final question. What does this reveal about God? And this is more of an implied question that I'm pulling out of here. He says this in verse 22 and 23, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory? The implied question Paul asks is not, listen, why does God reject some? I know that's what many of our minds go to. Why some and not others? Why me and not someone else? He he doesn't answer that. The, The question that he essentially asks and answers is this, why does God do it so patiently and slowly? And he gives two answers to this. The first answer is this, Because both wrath and mercy will be shown. The reason God saves some and not others, and He's doing it over a long, patient process, is because this process in and of itself will show both wrath and mercy. In other words, it will reveal aspects of God's character that are essential for our worship of God, the Creator. Secondly, 
Because God's glory and power are put on display through both of these things, both in His wrath and in His mercy. We see a demonstration of God's glory and power. His wrath and justice, consider this, Christians, they demonstrate and they reveal the seriousness of evil and sin. And Christians, we cannot be embarrassed about God's wrath. We cannot be embarrassed about the doctrine of hell and God's imminent judgment, for it preserves God's divine justice. God would be a coward. He would be truly unfair and unrighteous if there was no wrath, if there was no hell. But the doctrine of hell upholds God's justice for all eternity. But having said that, having said that, let me hasten to add what Paul adds here. God is also patient. He could have wiped us all out the moment we sinned. Do you think about that? But he has endured with much patience. And God has a long wick. He is so merciful. Why? Why? Because he desires, listen, that you would respond to his mercy. Do you not see that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? God is so merciful, and God does not want you to presume upon his mercy and grace. And some of you have done just that. You've waited so long. You've, you've lived in your sin. You've heard the call of God to your heart, and you said, not now, not yet. I'm not finished with my sin. I'm not ready to run to God. I'm going to delay, 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 delay. Be careful. Be careful that you do not presume upon the kindness and mercy of God. Every day is him bearing with your guilt, bearing with the guilt of sinners all over the world, demonstrating his patience over and over again, and so many presume upon his grace and mercy. You see this lastly, though, it demonstrates his power to overcome his enemies and save his people. It's what he did with Pharaoh. It's the same point right here. Paul's main emphasis, did you catch this, is not on the destruction of God's enemies, but on the grace and glory shown to his people. It's true that some are prepared for destruction. It's right there in the text. But the emphasis is on those who are prepared in advance for glory. He shows his mercy and love towards undeserving sinners. God is so patient and slow with his wrath. Why? To make the riches of his glory known to objects of mercy. So while God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and God is not willing that any should perish, the miracle of miracles is not that God saves some and not others, but that God saves any at all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Why, church? By grace, by grace you have been saved. And as we look at the cross, and as we do so this morning through the Lord's Supper, one thing that we need to see is that both God's mercy and justice 
they meet at the cross. The cross reveals God to us. It reveals in the fullest way His wrath and His mercy. It reveals His grace and His love. For there He took what we deserved. He gave us what we did not. At the cross, we see that God is merciful and compassionate towards all who believe. And it is at the cross that we see that He has made known the riches of His glory, isn't it, for vessels of mercy? Vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. The cross reminds us of His wrath against sin. It reminds us, more importantly than that, of His power over sin and death. It reminds us of His great love. His mercy and grace for us who have been chosen before the foundation of the world. 